0: Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening, and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters.
1: everyone. Today I'm excited to have a special guest, Dr. Jack Arnold, to join us to talk about how he uses Doctor Who to teach psychological principles to new college students. Dr. Arnold is a cognitive psychologist, a member of SIPS, that's the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science, a professor, a zombie science instructor, and a Hoovian. How are you doing today, Jack?
2: Uh, I'm doing pretty well, Katie. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. I'm very excited to learn more about how you use Doctor Who and other pop culture stuff today. So maybe we can start out by unpacking each of that long list of things I just (laughs) mentioned. Uh, Would you mind sharing, first of all, how you got into cognitive psychology and then how it brought you to where you are today as an associate professor?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I guess this starts off with another pop culture connection. When I was Uh, 12 or 13 years old uh, that was when the x-files came out uh, and that was one of the first shows that i really dug into the mythology and the fandom and everything that went with it that was about the same time that uh, america online was was getting uh very popular so you could go on and chat with other people and learn about lots of different things and as i was digging into the background of the show one of the uh, characters uh, fox Mulder had a degree in psychology, uh, I believe from Oxford, if my memory serves me. Uh, so I was like, well, it's psychology. What is that? I want to learn a little bit more. So I started to investigate, uh, learned a little bit more about it. I'm sure my perspective was horribly biased at that point. I probably thought it was all, um, you know, just paranormal stuff. But seemed interesting. Uh, in high school, they offered – a course, just a, a one-term course in economics and psychology. That was the combination. Uh, so I took that and...
1: Uh, economics and psychology grouped yeah. together? Oh, interesting. Yeah, just
2: the, the first part was economics and the second part was psychology, so they didn't really integrate them, but I think it was just a, a quick hit of each, uh, you know, a little sampler platter to prepare you for later in life. Oh, okay. Uh, the only thing I really remember from that class is watching Sybil for like two or three weeks. That uh, the television movie with Sally Field, I think it's like four hours long. So of course, in thirty-minute increments or whatever we were watching. Um, but that uh, there was enough there that I became interested in continuing to, to study psychology. So as an undergrad, I decided to major in psychology. The first courses that I took, I really enjoyed. Uh, I picked up math as a major along the way. And those two things together, uh, one of the recommendations was to take cognitive psychology. And so I took that class with Dr. Jennifer Perry uh, at Baldwin Wallace College. Now it's Baldwin Wallace University. But she's an excellent instructor, uh, and I really enjoyed the material that we were talking about in there, especially the research on false memory. And in terms of, you know, the way I saw that as a college student versus now, at the time as an undergrad, I was doing stand-up comedy. You know, I love joking around. I love pranking people. And this seemed like a way to use science to prank people in a very controlled <laughs> and a- acceptable manner. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, no, it was, for, it was part of a study. So it's, uh, it's all good.
1: You're channeling that power for good. I mean, comedy <laughs> is also very good, but it's yeah. it, that's another way to do it. So, um if you don't mind me quickly asking about uh, stand-up comedy, where, sure. wh- how often did you do stand-up comedy? What kind of venues were you doing that at?
2: So it wasn't, you know, I mean, it was pretty early on, I think, in terms of a, if you want to think of it as a stand-up career, I guess it didn't last long enough to call it a career. I did, I got paid a few times, but I guess that, <laughs> if you use that as the metric. Uh, at that time, and even you know, growing up, and still to some extent, uh, I really loved stand-up comedy. I loved Saturday Night Live. I loved all of that stuff. But also, and again, maybe not surprisingly, given how I treat everything else that I look at, I wanted to know what was going on behind the scenes. So you know, I would I would watch a, a stand-up act, uh, and you know, think about the jokes and try to break those down. And you know, I wonder how they came up with this. And so started reading a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff uh, and, and really got into it that way. And then, and then that led to me wanting to try it. So I, you know, I tried it uh, really on campus and I went to a smaller school, so it was relatively easy to, to get a venue, uh, you know, cause you just go over and sign up for the venue for a few hours and put on some shows. And a lot of my friends, uh, would invite their friends and, you know, everybody was really supportive. So even at first when I, I wasn't very good at it, Uh, And that's not to say that I was very good at it later on either. Uh, But very early on, very supportive. Uh, So I I kept at it. Uh, I took some courses at uh, the Improv in Cleveland uh, to try and get better at it. And then when I went to graduate school, uh, I found open mics where I could and participated in those. Uh, The University of Arkansas is where I did my graduate work. They had a comedy competition. uh, So I, I took part in that. Uh, the year that they did that and, uh, you know, got on stage where I could, I really, at some point I had to make a decision do I want to throw myself into that full time, uh, and, and possibly leave graduate school. Uh, and that seemed a little less appealing than sticking with, uh with my academic career uh, and i think that's worked out pretty well uh now i have a very captive audience they're not really supposed to leave <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's I got them for, certainly
1: a pro you can count on them being there they have a very invested reason to be there that benefits them so right. <laughs> that's good yeah,
2: i have them for three hours a week so they, <laughs> they workshop a lot of material <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which is really the goal of any professor, I find, is that I, right. I get to workshop my material. I've never done any stand-up at all, um, and but I love stand-up. I love hearing about it. I also like behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, one of the books I read, I don't know if you read this, Poking a Dead Frog, Conversations with Today's Top Comedy Writers. I haven't. It, it's, a, it's a fun book. I actually um, ran into some of the Daily Show writers after a stand-up thing that they did here, and... It's it's just really cool because it seems like something that people could take for granted that cuz good stand-up comedians I think they make being funny look easy but I know it's nothing like that so I'm I'm always impressed with people who can pull it off or even put themselves out there to to try out routines not knowing if people are going to get it or not or find it funny.
2: Yeah, I was one in graduate school. While I was doing this, somebody asked me, you know, what it's like, uh, and I said, you know, especially when you bomb, um, you know, and I said it's it's really a terribly lonely feeling. But you know, being up there and getting a laugh, uh, the weight that comes off of your shoulders, especially early on at that moment, that it's it's a really great feeling. Uh, but you get some of that, I think, in the classroom too. If you're, uh, you know, sometimes you're just having a, a day where whatever you're talking about doesn't seem to land. Mm -hmm. And then finally you'll get somebody that asks like a really good question or they perk up when you give an example and that, you know, there's an element of that too of just now, okay, I've got them. I can, I can keep pushing through this and, and get through this material and have some fun with it.
1: Oh, that's such a cool way to describe it. And I can definitely relate to that from being in a teaching setting and you're right. It does. It's not predictable what's going to land or what's going to make sense but you're right it is such a good feeling to be able to see people get really engaged in what you're doing so Mm -hmm. that's cool to hear that comparison so you decided to put yourself fully into graduate school and you started off being interested in false memories and then kind of where did you go from there
2: and so I was working with uh, Dr. Jim Lampinen at the University of Arkansas and, and looking at memory editing mechanisms, you know, just all of the things that we do to monitor our own memory. Uh, and false memory was a big part of that. But then I became interested in prospective memory, which is remembering to do something in the future. Uh, and a lot of those things can connect back pretty easily to, you know, think of, of the the realm of forensics in terms of like eyewitness memory and and spotting uh either a missing child uh or uh, a potential culprit you know if you've got like a an all points bulletin out the the investigators need to keep their eye out for certain individuals uh, and so that was always a connection i kept coming back to but perspective memory was something i got very interested in as well and that's actually one of the, the things probably that's in my main area of, of interest in terms of research uh, now although at a, at a smaller school like i'm at the students really drive the research in terms of their independent studies but i try to push them toward perspective memory whenever i can
1: yeah that's very interesting so in your school do you oversee things like um do you have honors theses? Those are the kinds of things they have at my department. Is it a similar kind of setup for undergraduates?
2: Yeah, so the honors students uh, have to, well, they don't have to. I mean, legally, they don't have to do any of it. But, uh, you know, they, the to graduate with honors, you have to attempt uh, an honors project, and those are typically empirical projects. Uh, and occasionally, we have independent study students, too. So I have uh, another student who did a self-designed major in cognitive science. You know, he was interested in cognitive psychology, but also really interested in computer science and philosophy, so we put together an overall major for him. Uh, he's going to do a, sort of a combination capstone and look at a, a wide variety of aspects of cognition in relation to notifications that you get on like your phone or on your computer. Uh, and so that's, you know, the, that's set up with the students like that. They can push us in a lot of different directions, try some different research that, uh, you know, maybe isn't our main focus, but certainly something that we're... Happy to investigate.
1: Oh, that—that's really cool. Thanks for for sharing that. Um, sure. What about what about SIPS? For listeners who are unfamiliar with it, could you tell us a little bit about what the organization is and what led you to become a member?
2: Yeah, so it's a service uh, organization. Uh, you know, providing all kinds of services to the field, uh, potentially. Uh, the you know, SIP stands for Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science. And so the main focus is trying to improve the field, whether that's through improving methods, improving practices, uh, increasing things like diversity and inclusiveness in our field, uh, trying to improve training uh, so that people have a better understanding of different methodologies and statistical practices, uh, trying to improve policies, so one of the issues that comes up a lot are the policies in place at like journals or societies or even at the the university or departmental level that are actually incentivizing things that uh, you know that we might refer to as questionable research practices uh, you know and and to some extent, as psychologists, we should know better than to. <laughs> put those sorts of, of incentive structures in place, but just trying to, to do what we can to improve the field. I got involved, actually coincidentally, it was the, the same semester I was preparing the Doctor Who course, uh, I was on sabbatical, and a tweet went out, uh, Samin Vizier sent out a tweet mentioning uh, this uh, upcoming meeting for what they were calling SIPS at the time, uh, but that wasn't necessarily going to be the final name. Uh, and it sounded interesting. It was just a few hours away from here, uh, from where the meeting was going to be. So I'm close to Baltimore. This was the meeting was going to take place in Charlottesville, at the Center for Open Science. And I said, "Well, I'm yeah, sure I'd, I'd love to go to that." So I sent in um, an application. Uh, I was selected to go, and I think they did a pretty good job of of inviting everyone who applied that year. But it's uh, it's a conference, it's a meeting, but it's different than most of the conferences I've been to. It's essentially you come there with a goal, people lay out some potential potential problems that they want to work on, and then you spend the day working on things. And you can get a lot done if you get you know some motivated, intelligent people in the same room, and you decide, okay, we're gonna we're gonna address this problem right now. Let's let's workshop it, you know, talk, talk about it, and then put this information together. Uh, and we did that through, we call them hackathons um, and unconferences, uh, you know, like a hackathon like they do in computer science. You know, we just have, we want to build a program that does this thing. Let's sit down and start coding. Uh, we did that with a, a variety of topics. And, and I I walked away from that meeting that first year thinking, I, this may have been the most productive three days of my life. Wow. Uh, and, and, to some extent, you know, I make this joke, it has ruined me for all of their meetings now. <laughs> Every time I go to a meeting now and, you know, I spend 90 minutes in a room and at the end I think, well, we probably could have hammered that out in a single email in two or three sentences. Uh, I think back to SIPs and how, you know, in eight to 10 hours, people have put together essentially an entire manuscript that outlines a number of different changes for like journal practices. Uh, and so, um, I was very excited after that first year. Uh, they wanted to now formalize and create an organization, uh, so I threw my, you know, my my hat into the ring for the interim executive committee. We got things started. I was uh, fortunate enough to be elected to the, uh, the executive committee from that point forward, and so spent the past few years just trying to pitch in where I can and, and help the organization along.
1: Well, that that's amazing. And I think it's so exciting for the field of psychology. I'll certainly link in the liner notes for anyone who or the show notes for anyone who wants to find out more information about SIPs. So now let's move on to the main topic for the episode. You are a self-identified professor, zombie science instructor, and a Whovian. And I definitely understand the professor part. But can you tell us what you mean by the zombie science instructor part?
2: Yeah, it's probably worded in an awkward way. I'm not a science instructor who is also a zombie. (laughs) That's
1: reassuring. (laughs)
2: Uh, So, you know, one of the approaches that I that I've taken um, while I'm here, you know, there are courses that I teach. You know, cognitive psychology, research methods, statistics. Those courses that I, I really enjoy. Uh, and I've taught them enough that now I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with where they're at, which I guess 10 years into my career I should be relatively comfortable <laughs> with where the classes are set up like But we have service courses here too. So courses in like the first-year seminar uh, courses, we used to have a sophomore interdisciplinary seminar um, And so I would be asked relatively frequently early on you know, what courses are you going to put together for these uh, for these service programs and Especially early on, I was very focused on getting my courses for the major in line. But I thought, well, if I'm going to teach one of these service courses, I want it to be really fun for the students. I want it to be really fun for me. Uh, I want it to be engaging and I want it to be an excellent academic experience. But I really want it to be fun and I want it to be something that, you know, I couldn't teach in any other situation or, or unlikely would be able to teach in other situations. So I started a list of ideas, and one of the first ideas that I came up with, and I think it was based on timing, so this was around uh, 2012, uh, you know, zombies were back in a way in popular culture, and I thought, you know, I can take zombies and I could build a interdisciplinary course about it. So we can talk about a number of different aspects of psychology. We can bring in neuroscience. We can bring in physics, chemistry, environmental science, a wide variety of things. So I designed an interdisciplinary course. Uh, We called it Surviving the Zombie Apocalypse. And so every week or two, we could talk about a different module. It was skewed heavily towards psychology because I was the one teaching it, but we can bring in uh, folks from other departments. So I brought in somebody from the physics department for a few days, uh, brought in somebody from the bio department, actually brought in a few different people from the biology department uh, to talk about different aspects of it. Um, That program, the SIS program uh, has gone away Uh, But, fortunately, uh, I was able to convert that course to uh, a week-long course for our Summer Science Academy uh, here at McDaniel. Uh, The high school students visit the school and spend a week here, and so I have now a course for um, zombie science during the summer.
1: They must just absolutely love that, and it must be such a fun experience for them.
2: Yeah, it's it's a it's a good time. I think they enjoy it. I love it.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, That's important, uh, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, and it's it's in part too over the summer. you know, with this zombie course, I've been able to try some different things because I, you know, the students are with me basically from nine to four every day, so we can try something out. We can try something for an hour. If it doesn't seem to work, I've got you know essentially a semester's worth of material in my back pocket. We can swap some things out if there's something they're not liking as much. You know, we can switch to a different uh, context or a different concept pretty easily. So I've, uh, really enjoyed that class.
1: You know, I, I think something that I, I'm thinking about, there there are certainly advantages to having something that's engaging and creative for the students to get into. And then, you know, as, as people in psychology, we know that if people are really engaged and paying attention, they're more likely to understand the material and at least pay attention to it. But it also seems like part of the experience might be, as you were saying, you having fun doing it might prevent burnout when often teaching loads can require a lot and there might be otherwise some repetition in courses. Has that been your experience at all that getting to kind of match your personal interests and with some of your academic interests has have kept things exciting and fun for you too?
2: Yeah, I think so. And and even just rotating through courses. So I think if I was in a position where I had to teach the same course Um, you know over and over again every single semester uh, I think I would burn out very quickly Uh, but being able to rotate through and even just change some of the the material that we cover you know in in a class like cognitive psychology you know I I make small changes every now and again but every uh, I think twice so far in the the 10 years I've been teaching I've just you know essentially thrown everything out and started over cover a, a fair amount of the same material but just trying to reframe things and go through to keep it fresh from that perspective and I think being able to teach some of these courses where I can integrate pop culture you know again that's, that's a nice little refresher I, I think even in the semesters where I'm teaching uh, a course like the, the zombie SIS or the, the Doctor Who course that we'll talk about in, in a few minutes having that course that semester I feel more energized for the other courses that I'm teaching that semester too even though those are courses that I've taught before
1: uh, that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, at least from my experience, um, this podcast actually got started because I was teaching a class on child mental health, and we were kind of talking about developmental trajectories and started talking about some fictional characters in Star Wars and how, you know, um, which ones that you know, had the force decided to go towards the dark side or the light side or whatever it is. And it seemed like something the students got into, but I also enjoyed trying to look for material that they would be interested in and that would engage them. So it's it's just so cool to hear about other people using that type of approach. Um, so we wanted to talk for sure about Dr. Who. Your blog post is actually what, what prompted doing this episode. A mm-hmm. lot of our listeners will be really excited to hear that you're a whobian and i've got to ask what do you love about doctor who
2: yeah so it's uh there, there's a lot of different aspects of it uh i think to some extent there's uh because of the setup of the show we've got a character who can travel in time and space uh and beyond that, there aren't a ton of rules, so you can really play around with a lot of different uh, types of stories. And I think that has been pretty, uh, pretty exciting for me to watch. Uh, I, I got into the show relatively recently, I guess in the grand scheme of things. I, I vaguely remember uh, episodes with you know, Tom Baker on PBS with the, you know, the, the, the weird guy with the long scarf uh, when I was a little kid. Uh, I remember there being a bit of a to do uh, when they were trying to relaunch the show uh, in the '90s with uh, between BBC and Fox, uh, they yeah, had a pilot, uh, you know, what we call the the telly movie now, the the single episode that was to relaunch the show. And I remember sort of in on the fringes of of geekdom at at that point where I was, even that I was hearing about that. Uh, but every summer I try to watch these days. I, I pick a show that I haven't seen, but that People talk a lot about, or people seem to really enjoy, and I'll put that on while I'm doing stuff over the summer, you know, fixing things around the house. And Doctor Who was one that people had been talking a lot about. So I think this was summer of 2011 or summer of 2012, maybe. And I put it on, and it, it was okay. I could see the charm in it, um, but there was an episode in that first season from the the relaunch of the show. So the show was off the the air for a little while, and then it came back in 2005. Uh, and that relaunch, uh, the first season, there's an episode called Father's Day. Uh, and one of the characters, her father had died in the past. Well, they go back to the moment that her father had died. And, you know, as you might anticipate, she saves his life. But that creates a whole bunch of issues. And I really like the way they handled time travel, uh, the way they handled, you know, w- what likely would happen in that situation. I can imagine if I went back in time and one and of parents had died. Even if somebody told me like, you can't disturb the past because there could be dire consequences, you know, the, the emotionality of that moment you would, you would act. Uh, and I found that actually the stuff that I was working on while I was supposed to have the show on in the background had stopped and I was sitting down and like leaning forward in my seat. And I was like, Oh, I guess, uh, I enjoy this show now. So, um, you know, like some of the stuff I mentioned earlier, I, I really dug into the history of it. So the show has been on since 1963, uh, you know, it's it's been a major part of pop culture uh, in the U.S. for a while, but especially uh, over in in the UK where the show started. And just being able to dig into all of that material, all of that background, also was a, was a, a fun exercise. Uh, and it just so happened that you know, the 50th anniversary in 2013 coincided with uh, an opportunity I had to teach at our European campus. So I was over there trying to become immersed in, you know, some wider European culture. Uh, and one way to kind of dip in and out of that, from a from a pop culture perspective, was to keep watching Doctor Who. So I went through the entire history of the show, uh, all the episodes, at least all the episodes that are available, over a two or three year period, uh, and really immersed myself.
1: Wow, that that's so great! And it it's it sounds like from reading your blog post that it really was perfect for that class that you're trying to do where you were trying to combine pop culture education and scientific psychology so you specifically tied doctor who together with metacognition and i'm wondering before we dive a little bit more into that class if you could please define metacognition for listeners who might be unfamiliar
2: sure so you know cognition we're talking about mental processes Uh, and so if we make it a meta level, we're abstracting it. But another way to think about it is it's, it's thinking about thinking. Uh, it's your cognition about cognition. So if I have some level of understanding about how the memory system seems to work, I can use that knowledge to help improve my own memory. Uh, and so specifically in the context of this class, uh, it's about study skills. It's about Using what we know about cognition to try to improve uh, college students' abilities to to learn the material and be able to utilize it better in the future.
1: Wow, that that sounds incredibly helpful. Is that something that students kind of come in eager to learn?
2: I think some of them do. In fact, you know what I found with this class, and I kind of had a, a guess that this would happen when the announcements go out for all of the first year seminars and all the topics and everything go out the students rank their choices and then they get placed based on those rankings and as i anticipated uh some of the students that showed up had no idea what doctor who was they wanted to learn the study skills right and so that that makes sense i guess think about it from the context of a of a student they're about to enter college Maybe they feel great about how well they study, maybe they don't. But that is certainly a skill that should stand out as something that's going to be extremely helpful for them, hopefully. Uh, and uh, a number of them signed up for the class because of that. It had nothing to do with Doctor Who.
1: Okay. And so you you write about in the blog post that Doctor Who, what seemed like a good fit specifically because of the type of character and why that might be relevant for beginning college students. Would you mind talking a little bit about that?
2: Sure. So the, I guess a, a couple of different aspects of it. The original remit of the show was actually to educate. So it was to teach uh, folks about the past, right? So they could go back to a certain time period in the past, and they could learn about things like, you know, French Revolution or something like that, where uh, they could present material and, of course, present it in in the context of a science story, but uh, help get people interested in that. So that was one aspect that stood out to me. Uh, but another aspect that really stood out to me was this idea of how the doctor changes over time. So it's a show that's been on uh, for, I guess, 55 years now. We just passed the the anniversary. And we've got a character who's been in the show the whole time. But early on in the show, the, the actor who played the doctor uh, was going to leave the show for, for health reasons. And they wanted to keep the show going. So they came up with this interesting idea of, well, what if we... Uh, change actors, but we do it in the context of the story. So we don't just change the actor and assume nobody will notice or just pretend like that didn't happen. But we'll actually build into the story that the doctor uh, renews uh, himself, uh, which later became uh, what we refer to as regeneration. And that echoed a little bit with me when I left high school and was heading off to college. uh, In high school, I was, or at least I tried to be funny, uh, in retrospect, some of those jokes weren't very good, but it was more like funny in the back corner of the classroom with my friends. And I realized that this was an opportunity for me to, to change some aspects of myself and try to, you know, put myself out there, you know, say yes to more things, be more extroverted, I guess. Uh, and also really push some of the, the comedy, uh, in ways that, you know, because now it's, it's a whole fresh set of people around me. If I'm embarrassed no big deal. Uh, It was also some incorrect thinking on my part. I was at a very, very small high school uh, and I was going to a college of about 2,000 people and that seemed huge to me. Uh, In retrospect, 2,000 people does not seem like a lot um, because they all figure out who you are very quickly. Uh, but so that idea of, of change and renewal and, and a change in perspective seemed um, applicable to first-year students. And I knew that I could take that change in the doctor and even the different characters that have been in the show over time and utilize that uh, difference in perspective taking and difference in, in personalities and use that to build into a number of different assignments, both in terms of metacognition, but also one of the main components of the first year seminar we we need to teach them how to be college citizens and what that means and what they're going to be asked to do and you know what decisions they're going to have to make in their four years here
1: oh that's that's so cool that you're able to use apply some of your personal experiences remembering transitioning to college and kind of link that to what might be meaningful to your students that you teach now that's really cool So we'll definitely link to the blog post for more details about your learning objectives and assignments, and it has a lot of detail on there, which is great. But I was wondering if maybe you could just give a preview to our listeners by focusing on the final assignment for that class and the tasks that you asked them to do in that assignment.
2: Yeah, so one of the main learning objectives for the first-year seminar is to... uh, improve students' abilities to analyze research, to uh, consume that research and be able to understand what's in there and share that information through writing. Uh, there's also a component where we want them to be better at uh, you know, oral communication too, but for the, the main assignment, it's really focused on writing. And the easiest thing to do And I I mean that from the perspective of coming up with an assignment is a a standard research paper. Uh, And those are fine. And, you know, I think students can get a lot out of those. But I wanted to do something a little bit different. And so I I did some investigating of other possible assignments. uh, And one of the assignments that has come up a few times is the idea of a blog post. And I like that from the perspective of we can still assess lots of different aspects of writing. Uh, but we can also add uh, other types of media into the blog post too. So if they wanted to include pictures, that was fine. Really, if they wanted to include videos, that was on the table. Uh, And so they could integrate lots of different aspects of it. If they were less – well, let's just say that the writing ability coming in can be pretty variable. And if they're great writers, that's fine. Mostly, I just need to stay out of their way. But if they need some more experience writing, this would give them a, a spot where they could write in some different styles. Uh, so you can think in terms of a more formal, I guess science section where they lay out some of the research, but then a, a less formal discussion section in terms of now you're I, I asked them to teach some metacognitive, strategies to other people and i asked them to do that in the context of pop culture so their language could be a little less formal there too and so they'd have the ability to within the same uh, assignment approach the paper uh, or the blog post in this case in a lot of different ways Uh, and so i looked around online to see for some good examples Uh, and there's a a, a website uh, the learning scientists uh, who have a great collection of blogs that are actually on metacognition. So that was excellent to see because that that's where I could start my students for them to feel for what can be in these blog posts. I also have a few colleagues here at McDaniel, Paul Molhauser and Josh Ambrose, who have used blogs and assignments in their classes before, too. So I knew I had a few folks here who, you know, if I was running into issues or needed questions answered, I could, you know, pick up the phone or actually more likely walk five minutes across campus Mm -hmm. and see if they were in their office and and throw some ideas at them.
1: Oh, that's great. And so I, I enjoyed reading some of the examples that you gave that they made connections between metacognition And uh, concepts and pop culture like Supernatural and The Walking Dead. And I was wondering if you'd mind telling us which concepts they identified in those shows to give us kind of a, a sample of what they came up with.
2: Yeah, so I have to admit, uh, one of my pop culture blind spots is Supernatural, so I'm just going to apologize ahead of time if I misspeak specifically about the show.
1: And I Uh, haven't seen it, so I'll be none the wiser, but listeners can tweet (laughs) at us if we're wrong.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so I know there are two, and when I say I know, I mean I think uh, that I might be correct. There are two brothers uh, who are fighting evil. Uh, and that's just that's as specific as I'm willing to get. <laughs> but apparently they also keep records uh, and collect information about like all the different evil entities, you know, demons and, and what have you that that they fight. And so in this particular blog post, the student talked a little bit about the the background of the show, but talked about things like retrieval practice. Uh, and using things like semantic networks or concept mapping as a way to learn, but did that in the context of saying, okay, let's pretend that the two main characters needed to learn lots of information about all of these these demons and which demons are related to what other evil entities, and, and actually drawing out a map of all the connections between these, uh, you know, and, and all the different characteristics, and mapping all of that out in a way that you could visualize the information in addition to having some some verbal characteristics of that information uh, and it was a very uh, interesting way um, to, to talk about things like semantic networks and concept mapping and this I think again goes back to one of the advantages of a blog post like this uh, the student could integrate photos uh, or screen captures from the show uh, including some of the you know, the demons and other evil entities from the show, but also then draw an actual semantic network. And in a, a term paper, I guess you could do that, but this really allowed for uh, a lot of additional creativity in presenting this information. So that one, that one I really liked, another one that I thought was pretty interesting. Do you mind
1: if I well, ask you real quick just to describe what a semantic network and concept mapping, the basic gist of those in case anyone's not familiar.
2: Sure. So you can imagine, I mean, I guess the, the simplest thing is um, draw a circle and in that circle, write dog. And now we've got a concept for dog and that node in the semantic network, that little circle rep- represents that concept. And then we would draw a line to related ideas. So you could imagine, uh, in fact, to anyone listening, I'll just say a word and think of you know, whatever word comes to your mind. Uh, I'll see if I can predict it. Dog. So now you may have thought of cat. And if that's the first word you thought of, great, then that works. Um, If you thought of something else, just imagine that other word being in a a circle or a box or an oval, (laughs) whatever you prefer, Mm -hmm. and draw a line between those. And what you're symbolizing is those two concepts are connected. And so if you start at the top with some particular demon and you draw lines off of that demon and talk about all the characteristics, maybe all the powers, spells, or anything that this demon knows, and then maybe that demon is related to another demon or to some other entity, you would draw a line between those. And so essentially what you're doing is creating a map that shows connections based on meaning uh, and other associations between all of those concepts.
1: Okay, thank you. That's very helpful.
2: Sure. The other... Uh, you know, a number of the blog posts actually stood out, but another one that I really enjoyed, in part because I I watched the show, uh, is the blog post on The Walking Dead. And that student took uh, some interesting ideas that actually tied into uh, current events at the time. So this class took place in the fall of 2016. So we were going through uh, the presidential election and um, you know a lot of different. Uh, things were happening in the world at that point in time. And this student took The Walking Dead and connected that to things like leadership and effects that we see in leadership in terms of knowledge. So there were connections between, um, you know, the characters in The Walking Dead, like Rick Grimes uh, and Negan as these leaders who think and seem to be very confident, but maybe don't have it all figured out. So the student talked about in the context of things like illusion of knowledge, where you're initially learning about something and you think you really have a handle on it, uh, but it turns out that mostly you have a low level of memory for that information, a low level of understanding. You actually don't know what you don't know at that point, and that really is related to things like the Dunning-Kruger effects, where people who have uh, a low level of knowledge may over-evaluate what they truly know because they haven't learned enough yet, to get a sense of how much knowledge is out there on a particular topic. And so this student did an excellent job of making those connections back to the leadership of, like, Rick Grimes. How many of us have lived through a a zombie apocalypse and know exactly what we should be doing in that situation? Uh, I assume very few. Uh, (laughs) And so just some interesting connections there about how someone might be learning uh, what's happening over time, you know, as you go through the experience, but you maybe should be hesitant in terms of your knowledge. And the characters in the show often seem very confident, like their way is definitely right, and they don't necessarily have the experience to be able to say that.
1: Oh, that, that sounds really interesting. Are these blog posts posted anywhere, or do they just turn it in as an assignment?
2: They turn it in. So that was, that was actually something I wrestled with, do I want to put them up online uh, and I didn't in part because I wasn't sure the caliber of these blog posts what that was going to be and I didn't want to commit to that ahead of time. That's on the table you know in my in my debriefing document for the course to myself uh, I have that as a a possible consideration for next time of of asking them and I can keep it voluntary to you know let some of them post it if they want to, but this first time through I was a little nervous of putting anybody in a position where they'd feel uncomfortable with their work being out there
1: oh yeah that totally makes sense um one thing i wanted to follow up on so the dunning-kruger effect you talked about one side of that which is people who kind of have the lowest knowledge might think they have more knowledge is it true on the other end of that where people who are actually quite knowledgeable might underestimate how much they actually know
2: yeah, I mean, to some extent, because once you get to that point where you know a lot about it, you also really start to realize how much you don't know. Uh, and I think sometimes we, we see a, an idea where you just s- stop understanding how much work it can take to learn that information. So that's one of the aspects I think we run into as instructors, where we know a lot about the particular topic we're discussing uh, and we end up in this situation where you know, we're asking ourselves, well, I, I, why don't they understand this or why aren't they getting it? And we forget to the extent that we struggled with that information early on or didn't even realize what we didn't know at that point because uh, we're looking at it from the other end of having all of the, all of the knowledge.
1: Yeah, so these types of concepts are helpful for instructor and student alike to make sure that we're aware of kind of our level of knowledge and how to best connect with people. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned a debriefing document. Is that something that you do at the end of class to kind of take notes for the next time you're going to teach it?
2: I try to. I'm not always as diligent as I should be. Uh, Sometimes that debriefing document is a little sparse, and then I find uh, lots of notes to myself in disparate documents as I prepare the course the next time through. Uh, And occasionally I find one of those comments, uh, you know, about a day too late when I'm going back through and I'll use that assignment again. And then I open it back up and I think, "Uh Oh, I was going to make a big change to this, but I guess (laughs) we'll put that off for next time.
1: I've had that happen, too, where I'm like, this section did not go over well. And then I'll kind of notice as I get to the next one, oh, I had a note to remove that or to add this, and I didn't do that. So right. I hear you. It's very good intentions, but in the, amidst everything else, it can be kind of hard to, to keep up with everything in a super organized fashion. Yeah. So so what, one of the things that I also really liked about your, your blog post is that you conclude it by examining evidence of effectiveness of your teaching approach, which of course is really important because we talked about, you know, that things can seem appealing, they can seem fun, they can seem like the content is really important, but what's key maybe especially in trying new approaches to teaching is to see if it's, if you're reaching the objectives that you've set for the class. So what kinds of things did you look for to evaluate the effectiveness of your teaching and what did you find for that class?
2: So, the since this was the first time through the course, you know, my main goal was to make sure it wasn't terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I succeeded. Uh, to <laughs> clearing Set that the bar
1: part. very, yeah. very low for first time teaching a class. I, I think that has a lot of advantages. Yeah. This,
2: if this is anything more than a dumpster fire, I'll be in good shape. <laughs> but so that was, that was my main goal. And then, um, you know, as is. Often the case, the first time I teach a course, I, I don't always put into place, you know, very rigorous evaluations. Uh, and, and a lot of times what I rely on that first time through especially is indirect assessment, you know, getting a feedback from the students on what they, what they think they learned. Um, and then some preliminary direct assessments in terms of exams, uh, performance on papers, things like that one of the last events that we did just to sort of uh, a a way of reviewing for the exam i split the students up into groups and we did like a pub quiz Uh, and actually i sat in my office uh, as the game master uh, with video and and powerpoint slides and stuff that i was projecting into multiple classrooms and we'd ask questions and then they had to run to my office with their answer on a slip of paper uh, and they did really well on that i was i put some what I thought were really tough questions in there, and they, they were nailing those. So uh, there was some retention in that, in that respect. Uh, and even following up with some of the students, uh, I guess somewhat informally, but uh, as the setup for the first-year seminar, we're also their advisors. So until they pick a major, they still come to us for advising. Uh, and even after they pick a major, sometimes they, they still stop by just to, to chat, which is great. And I would ask them, you know, how are your other know, classes going and ask about, you know, study strategy that they're using. And what I found was, uh, quite a few of them were talking about integrating things like retrieval practice, uh, you know, so testing yourself frequently, uh, spaced practice, so getting an earlier start and then spreading out how much you study. Uh, I think a number of them found interleaving as a very helpful approach. So that's where you switch between topics. So instead of studying for three hours straight on one topic, and then switching to another topic, you might study for thirty minutes from one topic, then switch to the other topic for thirty minutes, and then switch back to that first topic again, which makes a lot of sense in the context of college, where someone might be taking you know three, four, five classes at the same time, um, and they reported a you know a lot of a lot of use of that. So I think what this has shown me is that it. it Appears that we're heading in the right direction here and now the next time through I could do even more formal assessments You know really ask them lots of specific questions even before they start the course for the semester get a very good baseline uh, And then work forward with lots of other time points I I did that a little bit this time through one of the first assignments was actually to Set a baseline for or, or evaluate a baseline for what they currently did in terms of studying And then a few times over the semester, we revisited that. You know, the first, we call it study plan part one, and then we had a few more study plans along the way where I could see what they were trying to integrate over the course of the semester as new metacognitive strategies. Well,
1: that's great. So it kind of feels like maybe a, a... A pilot testing but then you also have some you had some pretty clear indicators both of their feelings about what they learned and about the class but then also just testing them objectively on some of the material so it sounds like the the early date on the class sounds like it worked well for achieving your objectives.
2: Yeah and he, like even in their blog posts I could see a lot of the, the material they were able to apply um You know, stuff that we talked about, but also their ability to utilize the research and draw some information from that. And and that seemed to suggest some carryover from uh, the earlier project they did where they had to present in groups on a, a specific article that I gave them. And part of that presentation included... Uh, integrating some version of pop culture Uh, actually specifically that had to be doctor who the final blog post they could pick whatever they want but they had to teach something from another class that they were taking Uh, and so it in a way it was structured very similar to what the blog post was going to be and I could sit down with each group go through the journal article you know, let them take that manuscript originally and break it down as much as they could. And I could give them feedback on, you know, what they pulled out of it, what I think they should have pulled out of that, uh, and then take that information. And then they reintegrated it into their final presentation. And I, I saw what appeared to be some carryover from that and their ability to break down some of those articles and pull out some of the key information. So the early uh, evidence, I would say, is not um, well, it's encouraging evidence, you know, obviously in terms of methodology and things like that. There's, there's plenty of improvements there. Uh, but I, I'm encouraged enough that uh, I think I'm excited to teach the class again.
1: Well, that's, that's great. And usually when we get towards the end of the episode, I like to ask if you have any kind of take-home message you want to share with the listeners today from what we've talked about.
2: And so I, I guess the biggest thing is using pop culture uh, and how uh, useful it is. Uh, sometimes it seems that people will hear about a class like this, like, you know, it's a Doctor Who course or it's a zombie course, and they think like, oh, man, we are wasting our money paying for these sorts of courses. But I think really you need to dig in a little bit deeper. And and to some extent, that pop culture is the, you know, the spoonful of sugar uh, so to speak, and the the rest of it can be the medicine. But even that medicine can be pretty fun and can be useful. And even stepping beyond that, ideas like transfer of learning—if we can learn something in a situation, that's great. If we can't transfer it to some other situation, that's really not a, a success. If we can, we're more successful. And the more ways that we can look at it, the more ways we can learn it, the more perspectives we can take from that perspective of looking at the material. Uh, in a variety of ways, the more likely we'll see transfer of learning. So adding pop culture aspects, I think, is is not only uh, fun, but it's also
1: really helpful. Thank you. That's that's really great point. And thank you overall just for your time today. I've really enjoyed learning about your approach to teaching and kind of how you got to where you are. And we'll definitely link to that blog post, but where else can people find out more about you and your work? And does your stand-up exist anywhere on YouTube? Uh,
2: fortunately, uh, I was doing most of my stand-up pre-YouTube. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's too bad. <laughs> I have some recordings somewhere, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, some of that, uh, if it was on YouTube, would be pretty embarrassing just because <laughs> of, uh, you know, I, I don't think I was the, the greatest stand-up in the, in the history uh, of, <laughs> of stand-up comedy. So, um but if somebody finds it online, please let me know. If for no other reason, I need to know where that is and what uh, what websites to block <laughs> from this campus. <laughs> but in terms of of uh, finding me, I'm on Twitter uh, at Dr. Arnold. D R A R N A L. Um, and I occasionally try to tweet jokes on there. Uh, they're usually not that great. But I also uh, retweet a lot of job ads. So if you want to hear terrible jokes and learn about jobs that are available, <laughs> please feel free to check me out on Twitter. Probably <laughs> uh, you
1: overselling yourself there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> really, if you're looking for a job. Not he- not with me because I can't. Hide anybody. <laughs> but if you're looking for a job somewhere else, just uh, watch for my retweets. Uh, I do
1: follow Jack on Twitter and he's a good person to follow. So I'll vouch for you.
2: Thank you. you. Uh, I have a website. It's jackarnold.com. Uh, it's pretty sparse. It's mostly just a a place where I can, um, have a landing page for things like my CV and, and, uh, publications. I hope to actually start utilizing that a little bit more. I I started it really to, to get a place where I could uh, start collecting some, some information and hopefully I can do some more stuff with it soon. But, uh, if anybody wants to see a a picture of me with a a T-Rex skull, that's the place (laughs) to go.
1: Where was this T-Rex skull that you took a picture with?
2: So, <laughs> probably not in a place you would expect. I went on vacation, and I was uh, in Scotland, and we were visiting various uh, distilleries, and one of the distilleries, the Ardbeg Distillery, had a T-Rex skull out front. So, I took a picture with a T-Rex <laughs> nice. skull, and then went in and enjoyed some scotch. So,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, that sounds fantastic. Probably... Uh, good note to end on thank you so much for your time today we really enjoyed having you on
0: great thanks katie thank you for listening to the jedi council podcast a member of the geek therapy podcast network you can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com if you would like to support the jedi council podcast please check out our patreon page at www.patreon.com slash jedi council The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.